At Impact Houston, they have a number of people on staff, and one of them is named Caroline. I always feel like I'm saying her name wrong. I think it's Carolyn, Caroline. Anyway, Caroline said something very important to us uh, before we left, and that was this, that these kids that we served for that entire week, they most of them do have parents, at least one parent that's raising them. And with that, she wanted us to know something. She wanted us to know that those kids are loved, that their parents care about them. They love them. But simply put, they don't know how to love them. They don't know how to properly love them because they're just trying to make it. They're trying to make sure that they have food on the table. They're trying to make sure that they make ends meet. They're doing their best thing that they could possibly do. And I find that interesting because I think there's a a natural truth that we can have out of that, that most of us don't want to be bad people. I would say most of us, whenever we started out our life, we envision our life and we think, I'm going to be a decent person. I'm going to do good things. I'm going to try to be kind to others. I'm going to try to make money so that I can help others. And then one thing leads to another and we wake up and we say, how in the world did I get here? I'd be willing to bet most of our six-year-old selves would look at us and think, what are you thinking? You old fogey, right? Even me. My six-year-old self looks at me and says, what are you doing? You're a loser, right? But there's a natural truth there that I think is, is very important. And the truth is this. We all want to live a life that is meaningful. We all want to, at the end of our lives, say that I lived a life that had purpose. I lived a life that meant something. We want to be able to say that my life has been fulfilling. I've done something worthwhile. I've done something worth remembering. I want to share a story about a guy named Paul Kalanithi. Paul Kalanithi was a neurosurgeon, uh, and he studied at Yale. He actually died a few years back, and posthumously they, they took a bunch of his notes and his, his journals and things that he had written in, and they put together this book called When Breath Becomes Air. And he talks about this time when he was studying at Yale with his other uh, doctorate students. He talks about this debate that came up, right? And these doctoral students are debating, and the, he puts it this way. He says, the students at Yale argued that the words insisting we doctors place our patients' needs ahead of our own be removed. Let me read that one more time. They were insisting that the statement make, they made of we doctors place our patients' needs ahead of our own be removed. Now, at first glance, that honestly doesn't sound too bad. In one sense, that's kind of how we all go about life. It's how we decide our jobs, usually. We say, how much am I going to get paid? What are the hours? What's the environment like? Right? It's natural. We say, what's in it for me first? Not that I don't care about other people, but I, I need to take care of myself. I need to make sure I have a good job. I need to make sure that I handle everything that I have going on. But that's just the point that he's trying to make. The point he's making is if we decide to choose a lifestyle first, then we're, we're going to find a job, but we're not going to find a calling. We're going to find a job, but we're not going to find a calling. Calling is this. Calling is something that takes over every aspect of our lives. Calling is something that is greater than ourselves, something that is beyond just me and what I need and what I want. Calling is something far greater. Unfortunately for most of us, we didn't necessarily set out to not find a calling, 
right? But for most of us, we found a job. And the, the calling aspect kind of fell to the wayside. Here's the deal. If we're looking for a meaningful experience, if that is the case, if that's what we're looking for, then our greatest fear shouldn't be failure. Our greatest fear should be exceeding at something that ultimately doesn't exist or doesn't matter. It's not that we should fail in life. That should not be our fear. Our fear should be, I'm going to excel at something, but at the end of my life, what's the point? Who did I help? Who did I serve? Was it just myself? Was it others? There are many things that we can do in our lives that will bring an impact to us. There are many things that we can choose to do with our time that is going to have an influence on us. I'm here to tell you that there is only one person that we will ever meet that will completely and utterly and totally change our lives. That person is Jesus Christ. If you would grab your Bibles, let's turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to pick up reading here in verse 35. It's a bit of a long reading, so bear with me. Just to set the stage, Jesus is traveling through Israel and, and He's telling people finally why He's there. Why has He come to earth? And we pick up in this story in verse 35 of chapter 18. As He drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, He inquired what this meant. They told Him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. And he he has gone into the, the guest of a man, to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I want us to really look into this a little bit. I think it's a remarkable story that if you grew up in church, the significance of it probably is lost on you a little bit. I'll be honest. How many of you started singing the song in your head when we started reading it? As soon as I said the name, I'm thinking, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, right? I won't sing the whole song. It's embarrassing. But 
we kind of have this picture in our head of these stories that we hear so much, and we kind of lose the significance of what's truly happening. See, people are starting to ask Jesus, who are you? Why are you here? And the stories about him have gone abroad. Everybody's been hearing about it. And then finally, this great crowd comes because they hear Jesus is coming to Jericho. This great crowd comes out there to meet him. They say, finally, we get to meet Jesus. And then there's this blind man, right? He's sitting by the roadside, probably uneducated, blind from birth. And he's sitting there and he asks a question. He says, hey, I can't see what's going on. Why are you all yelling? What's up? And they tell him, they say, hey, Jesus is here. Jesus of Nazareth. And what does he do? He cries out in a loud voice. He says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Cries it out. And what do they do? They tell him to shut up. That seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? This poor blind guy, he's just trying to, you know, everybody else is already yelling probably. He cries out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And they say, be quiet. The reason that they did that is because this blind, poor beggar is using a royal title to call at Jesus. See, David was one of the greatest kings that their, their nation had ever seen. And this title, Son of David, see, that was reserved for whenever God Himself would come and be among His people. So when He cries out, Jesus, Son of David, they're telling Him, man, you're embarrassing us, be quiet. But it's incredible that this blind guy, this guy who can't even see, sees something that none of them can. See, I imagine he's heard a lot of stories, right? Heard a lot of Scripture being told about the coming Messiah. That's something pretty cool about Jesus and all of the prophecies about Him. You could say that He lived His life a certain way to fulfill those prophecies, right? What about the ones before He was born? It's a little harder for Him to control, right? But he's heard all these stories and he hears of the Scripture and the prophecies of who Jesus will be. And then he hears about this guy, Jesus, and he's finally around. And he just puts two and two together. And for the first time in the book of Luke, this poor, uneducated, blind beggar uses a royal title of Son of David for Jesus. For the first time. So what does Jesus do? Right? He asks for the man to be brought to him. Why is that important? See, most of the time in Scripture, Jesus goes to people. He's the one who goes and seeks them out and goes and meets them. But in this case, this blind beggar, he's using a royal title. So what does Jesus do? He says, I'm going to play the part of king. He demands that the man be brought to him. And he asks the man, he says, what do you want from me? What can I do for you? He says, heal my sight. And then in, the, in front of all this crowd, Jesus literally heals a blind man so that he can see again. I asked our kids in class if they had ever heard of that happening or seen it. I bet most of us probably haven't. Imagine being in the crowd in that moment and seeing what just took place and how you would feel. How incredible. What would you say? Wow! That's insane! Hey, you know, I got this, this, my arm's kind of feeling sore lately, Jesus, you know, you want to help me out kind of deal? But they go, and as you can imagine, all the people, as he's passing into Jericho, they run and say, hey, go tell dad, go tell mom, go tell cousin Joe, Jesus is here, you won't believe what he's already done. 
before he even enters into the gates. So Jesus, he's passing through Jericho, and he goes on out through to the other side, right? You can imagine the crowds getting bigger and bigger. Then we have this man, Zacchaeus, chief tax collector, short in stature. He's very wealthy. And this man, he wants to see Jesus, but the sad part is, he's pretty unpopular, right? This isn't somebody that people like, and so he knows this huge crowd's coming with Jesus. He's not so sure that they even want him there. He's not so sure that he even wants to be seen wanting to see Jesus. So what does he do? He finds a sycamore tree. A sycamore fig tree, to be exact. As you can see up here on the the image, it's this tree that has low-lying branches that are really thick. They have these big, full leaves so that you can get up in there and you can hide. So this is the perfect place for Zacchaeus to, one, see Jesus, because he's kind of short, obviously. But number two, kind of hide himself so that nobody will know that he's there. So to catch us up, Jesus is entering into Jericho. He's stopped by this huge crowd and he hears this beggar. He heals this man of his sight. The crowd gets bigger. Why would the crowd get bigger? Well, something incredible just happened. I'm going to tell all my friends. So now they're leaving Jericho. And the truth is, this fig tree is a little bit out of the way, right? It's off the beaten path, and you, you wonder, KT, how in the world do you know that? Well, I certainly wasn't there 2,000 years ago, and I would say most of us weren't. However, we can know that there are regulations on sycamore fig trees, just like there's regulations now. You can be upset about those or whatever, but they had them back then. And the reason was is these sycamore fig trees grew these little fruits that were extremely sticky. It was like super glue, and they'd fall. And you could take these little sticky fruits and you could throw them and hit them in people's hair and on their clothes and stuff, right? And you couldn't wash it out. You'd have to cut it out. You can imagine, little boys love this fruit. Incredible. But because of that, because of the mess that they make, the stickiness, the, the grossness of it, they said, you can't have a fig tree in the city gates inside of the wall and you can't have it on the roadside because it'll, t- it'll tear everything up. It'll get in the way. So this huge crowd's leaving Jericho And they're following this path, and then all of a sudden it either takes a swerve to the right or swerve to the left off the beaten trail, and it heads straight up to this tree. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus! And you can imagine, everybody goes, huh? They haven't even noticed him at this point. And then they look up there and they see this man, highly unpopular, extremely wealthy, and he's acting like a little child hiding. Here's an honest truth. I think a lot of us, we get some kind of sick pleasure in situations like that. When people who have, you know, for one reason or another, they have power or authority, when they're in a place of embarrassment, we get kind of excited, right? It's like, ooh, this will be good. We'll just watch them squirm. We watch it happen because it's not us, right? So they're excited about this. And what happens next? Jesus says to him, <clears throat> says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today. And as Zacchaeus meets the person of Jesus Christ, he is completely, totally, and utterly changed. But how can we know that? Everybody's upset with Jesus at this point, right? Like, why would you go to his house? Do you know who he is? 
Zacchaeus' heart has changed. It's because of what he stands up and he says. He says, as a result of meeting you, Jesus, I want to give half of everything I own to the poor. Half of it. Everything. That's a huge change of heart, is it not? For a man who has this much wealth. Then he goes on to say, if I have done anything wrong to anybody, if I've defrauded anyone, if I've cheated anybody, I want to pay them back fourfold. It's a little bit of a problem for Zacchaeus. See, in his line of work, Romans did not pay their civil servants well enough. And all over the world this happens, and where it does, if you don't pay your civil servants well enough, it breeds awful things. In order for, get, for you to get something simple done, like just paying your taxes, you have to bribe them, because they're not getting paid enough, they're going to make you pay for it. It says that Zacchaeus was a very wealthy man. This means it wasn't like he was just, you know, doing this out of need. It may have started that way, right? It may have started out as, man, I just have to make ends meet. But the higher up you go, the higher up you can pay. You can get paid. Zacchaeus was at the top of that tree as well. So, when he says, if I have cheated anybody, you can imagine their response as a crowd, right? Zacchaeus, what do you mean if? Right? What in the world do you mean if? You've cheated pretty much everybody here, right? That's why we're all upset. And so I can imagine the crowd at this point, they're starting to kind of change their tune. It's, I'm not as upset anymore because, hey, Zacchaeus, let me put my bid in now. This is how much you owe me, right? I'd be excited. But not only that, but I think every single businessman in that city would know the importance of what he just said. You're going to give away everything? It's not just some PR stunt. It's not just philanthropy for the sake of saving face. This is a man who has been changed by Jesus Christ. What has happened to his heart? He's met Jesus Christ, the Son of David. When we meet Jesus, whenever we encounter Him, He changes our heart and we can never be the same. I want to share one last story with you about a man named Ben and his wife Gloria. See, Ben is an archbishop in the Church of England. And he and his wife have lived in northern Nigeria for a long time. It's a very dangerous place to live. There's the Boko Haram, which is a militant group that basically controls everything in and out of the city. And they've lived there for a long, long while. Well, a few decades ago, He's gone on a business trip. He's speaking internationally at a convention or something. And he comes back home, and he walks into his house, and he sees his dining room table, and there's 12 kids sitting around it. And that's not so abnormal, right? Because there are a lot of needy kids in that area that he and his wife would often bring for dinner. and They'd feed them. And so as the sun starts to go down, Ben notices, hey, we need to get these kids home. He says, Gloria, go ahead and send the children home. You know it's not safe. Gloria looks at him and says, Ben, what do you mean? They are home. And Ben says, Gloria, what did you do? Right? Gloria says, Ben, there was no other choice. These children, they were going to die, and the only way to save them was for us to adopt them. And so, you see, these children can't go home because they're already home. 
And Ben said, Gloria, we need to have a talk. You can imagine they have one of those talks that, you know, couples have of, you know, where one does something without fully consulting the other, right? This is a pretty good thing for a lot of you if you've ever bought like a car without telling your spouse or something. This kind of trumps that. It's a little next level, right? So just bring that up the next time. So he goes away on another business trip a few months later. He's gone for about two weeks and he comes home. And this time there's not 12, but actually 30 kids sitting at his dining room table. He says, Gloria, what have you done? She said, Ben, the children, and no other place to go. So after she adopted 64 children, Ben said, we can't adopt anymore. And now behind their house, they have a dorm where they house over 500 kids. You can imagine in a place like that, that the people who are in control are unhappy with Ben and Gloria. They're unhappy because they're trying to have an iron fist over all of the people. And so there have actually been three attempts on Ben's life. On the second attempt, he was gone away on a business trip. He was supposed to be home at a certain day, and they knew that. And so they showed up at his house. But luckily for him, his flight was canceled. He was going to show up the next day. So they go to his house, and they go to his wife, and ask her, where is your husband? And she says, he, he's not home yet. As you can imagine, they think that she's trying to hide him. So they beat and torture his wife. Won't believe her. And after they've brutalized her, they stick a gun in her mouth and they pull the trigger. Ben comes home the next day. He finds his wife in a pool of blood. Miraculously, she is alive. She spends the next three to four months in a coma. Now, being an archbishop in the Church of England, you get some benefits. One is meeting the Queen of England. When she gets word of this, she calls Ben and says, Ben, I'm so sorry for what's happened. I want to offer you and your wife asylum here in England. Come and live where it's safe. So you can imagine one of the first things that Ben tells his wife when she wakes up finally. is, Honey, we, we can go and be safe now. We can get away from this place. We can live in peace finally. Gloria looks at Ben and says, but Ben, we will love the children. They still live in northern Nigeria to this day. Ben and Gloria weren't always Christians. They didn't always know Jesus, but once they met Him, it changed everything. We cannot encounter Jesus Christ and, and not change. We try to live our lives to the best of our ability, and sometimes we get swept up in what the world has to offer. We lose sight of what's really important. When Jesus comes and says, hey, I'm coming to your house today, we can't help but say, I'm going to give away half of everything I own. Jesus, what do you want? Take it all. Anything, that you, anything that's mine is yours already. If you've never given your life to Christ, then I strongly encourage you to consider doing so. If you want to know more about who this Jesus guy is, we'd love to talk to you about it. I'd be willing to bet for most of us, we already know who he is. For most of us, like stories like Zacchaeus's, we've kind of lost sight of the real significance of it. 
Does it still hold the same weight for us? We still get that feeling of, man, how incredible of a God you are that I would do anything for you. We still allow those passions to fuel us to say, I'll give up whatever it takes. I'll give up a spring break where I know all my friends are going to be having a blast and I'll go get dirty and play with little children. Does it drive us to want to adopt kids? To see a need and try to fill it? We as a church are about to do something incredible this year. We've done it a few times and I hope that it's not losing its importance to us, its power. Let's feed my starving children. Next week, you will have an opportunity to give financially. And I pray that you prayerfully do so. Spend this week praying, asking God, what could I possibly give to make this a reality? But in a few months, you're going to be asked to give of your time. Unfortunately, we keep our wallets down here usually. We keep our watches in our pocket right here next to our heart, I think, sometimes. Time's a little bit more important to us here in this country. My prayer is that you will give of your time any way you can. It's important. Give of your time. Give of your efforts. As Jesus himself said, he came not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve. That's what he's called us to as well. If you need prayers of the church this morning, if you'd like to give your life over to Christ, whatever your need may be, I pray that you will do so as we stand and as we sing.